0: In exchange for appropriate donations to the cause. An entire new age industry has arisen where knowledge, capital K, and something called self, capital S, is traded in expensive, brightly colored wrappings. I'm writing these lines on West Sunset Boulevard, Los Angeles, not far from the Palatial Self Realization Center. Complete with lavish gardens, a lake shrine, Hindu kitsch architecture, and expensive programs for improving spiritual self-knowledge and communion with God. I think it's fair to say that Western societies, and not just Western societies, are experiencing a deep meaning gap that risks broadening into an abyss. This gap is being filled by various forms of obscurantism. Don't worry, I had to look it up. The practice of deliberately preventing the facts or full details of something from becoming known. So this gap is being filled by various forms of obscurantism, that conspire to promote the belief that, first, such a thing as self-knowledge is attainable. Second, it comes with a price tag. Third, it's completely consistent with the pursuit of wealth, pleasure, and personal salvation. By contrast, Socrates never claimed to know, never promised knowledge to others, and crucially, never accepted a fee. And he says, to be a philosopher then is to learn how to die, it's to begin to cultivate the appropriate attitude towards death. If you read the book, um, which I haven't read, I've read pieces of it, um, I don't recommend his vision. He's not a believer, but he can see some things as they are. And so we come to this book of Ecclesiastes and what is probably King Solomon telling his pursuits. His search for meaning, for purpose. And today we're going to look at several verses and how he chases after wisdom and he chases after pleasure. And you're going to notice that he says I a whole lot because it's an autobiographical sketch. And I think... In our culture, infatuated with the self and with I, we can relate to an I without God. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind for in much wisdom is much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow I said in my heart come now I will test you with pleasure enjoy yourself but behold this also was vanity I said of laughter it is mad and of pleasure what use is it I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine my heart still guided me with wisdom And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is God's word. So we have this royal inscription. What would happen back in the ancient Near East is kings would basically give their great list of all their accomplishments and say how great they were and all the things that they did. Some would even say things like, I, king of the universe, did all these things. So Solomon is kind of following this kingly inscription and listing his achievements, his accomplishments, his pleasures, all that he searched, all that he found in life. And we see that in that first verse. The preacher has been given king over Israel in Jerusalem. And then he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Everything that happens in this fallen world under heaven, he says he he searched it all. He explored everything. He explored all kinds of wisdom. He says that it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. That word may actually not be strong enough. It could be something like an evil business, a tragic business. That the life that men and women face is hard, it's tragic, dark. He says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and is striving after the wind. One of the most important words in this particular book is that word vanity. And you'll notice maybe, if you have an ESV, sometimes other translations might have an, a, a footnote where it says that the Hebrew term is havel. And I'm going to try, throughout this sermon, to use that word, havel. Because vanity isn't good enough. Havel is a word that means many different things. Literally, havel means breath, vapor, Smoke. Eugene Peterson said that one of the people that he studied under irreverently called it flatulence. That life in this world literally is like breath, smoke, poof, gone. But it's clearly a metaphor, and you have to read the rest of the book to see the different ways in which he uses havel. That life under the sun is havel, it's insignificant. Meaningless. Work ultimately is futile. It's absurd. Senseless. But it can't be comprehended that it's full of contradictions. The just. The unjust. Sometimes the just die horrible deaths. Sometimes those who commit massive amounts of injustice live great. It's all good. And you look at that and you go, senseless absurdity we're going to see that throughout this book but one thing about this book is that we have to be careful in our interpretation of it because you sometimes will read things that are basically contradictions and by that i don't mean that the bible or that god is contradicting himself but that actually the point of the book is to hold intention life's contradictions. One scholar talked about how the book is meant to both tear down meaning and to build it back up, and he does that throughout. It's all sounding good. Enjoy life, Go get'. Them. And then it's toil. It's hard, meaningless. So he says, "All is havel and a striving after the wind." That literally is just wind feeding on wind. So basically, Havel, over and over and over again. Just feed on it. You chase it. You keep chasing it. He says, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. The idea here, crooked can make it sound almost like it's um, immoral, and clearly that can be the case in this world at times. But some say that it could be bent, What is bent? This idea that the way of life under the sun on this fallen planet, there's a lot of bent things. That life is broken. That this world, this fallen world is broken and cannot be fixed. And there's this sense in which, that's the first time that he mentioned God in the verse before, that God's kind of a part of that. This is kind of the way that the world is. It's fixed. It's, excuse me, it's not fixed, it's broken, and it's in desperate need of fixing. And I'm going to try to clarify that later, of what I mean when I say that God himself may somehow be involved in this. I said in my heart, and heart, don't just read feelings, sometimes when we Read the Bible, We, you know, when we think about in normal daily language, oh, you know, I'm going to follow my heart or something like that, like it's just desire. But heart is more like the center of his being, like the center of his mind, his will, his emotions, his whole embodied soul. He is saying to that, he's setting his heart on acquiring great wisdom, surpassing all over Jerusalem before me. So you get this sense of comparison. But he's going to go after all the greatest thinkers of the day, And he's got more than all of them. He's got the most. He says, My heart has had a great experience of wisdom and knowledge. He sought after it like crazy. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. He's looked at the whole thing. All of knowledge. The good, the bad, the ugly. All of it. And he perceives that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And if you look at a book of philosophers and death, sometimes you see what happens to philosophers. To be so consumed with knowledge and trying to figure everything out, you just get broken, you can't figure it all out. What's the point? Kind of that type of attitude. Sometimes, I don't know if you've ever had that, where you try to search for something, you try to figure something out, you try to research it, you do all the stuff you're supposed to do. One, just as a human being. But two, even as a Christian. There's knowledge everywhere. There's books about everything. Try to read a book on parenting. There's a million different Christian parenting books. About all these different ways in which in which you should figure out how to parent. Well, sometimes you look at that you get a little vexed. I still can't figure it out. What am I doing? So in much wisdom and much knowledge there can be Much sorrow. Chapter 2. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So he's telling himself, Okay, tried the knowledge thing. Knowledge didn't go well. Still striving after wind, still Havel. He says, Behold, this also was Havel. This also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? Laughter, it's mad. Proverbs says something about this that I think is very important in what he's trying to get at here. Proverbs fourteen thirteen. Even in laughter the heart may ache, and in the end of joy may be grief. So sometimes comedy... Laughter can be used as a mechanism to cope with the havel of life, with the seeming meaninglessness of it all. We see comedians do that. At times we see the sad story of of comedians who end it all, trying to cover up much grief, and you laugh and cover it up. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. So he goes after what many go after. He says, hey, I'm going to pursue pleasure. I'm going to pursue most of this passage is about sensual pleasures. How to cheer my body with wine and the effects of it. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly. So we have the sense in which he's chasing the pleasure of his body with wine. Till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Life can be short, so drink. In the sense in which that's not going to answer all the problems. So we have him pursuing sensual pleasure in a world of Hevel. Laughter. but The superficiality of it. Wine. And how wine itself, though it can cheer the body, and God himself has said in the book of Psalms that it is a gift, but it also is not the answer. He moves to things like his achievements. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So he's making vineyards and gardens. He's trying to reconstruct paradise. And he can do it all because he's king. And we saw that in the life of Solomon. At that time, kings would do this. There's all kinds of ancient Near Eastern literature that show the ways in which kings would have gardens and temples. And then you would hear things like trees and you read about all these things in the Bible, these little places that come up of of these gardens that they would make. And then they would go and they would conquer a territory and then they would grab some special thing like a tree or something from the soil and bring it back and try to construct these showing that they are the conqueror, they are the achiever and they have this beautiful paradise to show for it. It was even called Victory Gardens. We even see gardens as a place of worship. He goes on, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. So he served all the time. Served by those slaves that he's taken from a territory, those that just grew up in his own house. He purchased them. I had great possessions. So again, we get to possessions. Life under this world. Let's go chase all the possessions we can chase. Herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. He outdid them all. There's this sense of status that's going through here. To find your hope in your status. To find meaning in what you have and what you have achieved. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. So treasure. Again, we see that in Solomon's life and people bringing him treasure. I got singers, both men and women, In many concubines, the delights of the sons of man. So the first part, music. We just heard some. And the power of music. Surrounding himself with song. What A great thing to do in life. But it's still not enough. In many concubines, the delights of the sons of man. Again, you'll see a little note likely in your Bible. Because that word... They don't know what it really means. (laughs) It's basically what they say. The Hebrew meaning is uncertain because it's only used one time in the Old Testament Scriptures. And it can mean what some translations have translated. Concubines, the delights of the sons of man. So obviously, seeking pleasure, sensual pleasure, not just with one spouse, but with several women. Some probably being concubines. Again, the sense of exploits and conquering achievement, subjectification. Some people think that that word means that because there can be a literal translation of breasts. And again, you look at the Bible and go, whoa, Bible says that? Yep, it can say that. Because of the context of the delights of the sons of man, Song of Solomon makes very clear that one of the delights of the sons of man is lovemaking. And so he could have sought his hope for his life and in his sensual desires. It also just might mean chests. You can rhyme the two if you want. So chests as in treasure. That he's conquering all these places and he's gathering treasure and just more and more possessions all to himself. I became great, again, status. Surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Kind of goes back to that theme. I'm still wise, got all this stuff. Got, got every single thing that I want. Whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I got what I wanted when I wanted now. I kept my heart from nothing, no pleasure. Went for it all the way. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. So again, we have kind of a positive sense here. Yeah, that's what I got. That was, that was my reward. Pleasure feels good. But then, it's like step back, reflect. and Go, hmm. I considered all that my hands had done. All this stuff that I've done. All this toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was havel, and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. There's no ultimate profit in it. Sure, kind of a temporary moment. Yeah, it's enjoyable. But then you reflect and you go, this is just endless searching and chasing. It does not fully satisfy what my heart longs for. And so when Solomon looks for meaning in these places, he doesn't ultimately find it. In a world of Havel, he just sees nothing. Just chasing after the same stuff. So that's kind of going through it verse by verse. But now I want to step back for a second and look at the whole thing and then tie it to the rest of, of the Scriptures. I want you to notice again a few things here. How many times I is said, how much the emphasis is on the, the self. I, myself, I'm doing this all for me, it's me. So I can approach life in a world of Havel and just go me, it's all about me. And it's gonna be Havel. It's gonna be there for a second and then gone. It's gonna be futile, it's gonna be sad. It's not going to satisfy. It may lead to addiction. In Solomon's case, all kinds of idolatry, which is where pleasure eventually goes. Something that God may have given as a gift can then be turned into an idol. But we step back and we see all this sense of I and of self. And I also want you to look at this sense of embodiment. That A lot of this is about the body. You see things like hands, heart, eyes. He's building, he's making, he's doing, he's a human being in his body, in this world. And then notice all of the garden talk, all of the paradise talk. And what we end up having here is we have the fact that we as human beings have a longing for something that we were created for that takes us back to the garden. And you have this mix and some of this tension of what I was talking about at the beginning, of that God gave us the body and that it is good. It's good to be a human being in our bodies. But because our bodies live in a world of Havel, paradise doesn't come on our own ever since the fall. When you go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and I was looking through that as I was looking at all these different words and themes and going, there's so much that relates to the experience of what happened at the fall to this kind of talk. She's looking at the tree, the delights of the eyes. She's in a garden. She's in paradise. Adam in paradise. Everything is good. God is there, relationship with him. God has given them to be kings, to be rulers, to have dominion over the earth. Go enjoy it. It's all yours. The freedom. You can eat from any tree you want. Except for this one. And then the temptation, of course, comes. And then the fall comes. And they succumb to the tempter. And the desires of God that were given for good, that are good desires, were corrupted. Wisdom, again, another theme, to be wise in their own eyes. I can do this without God. This can be about me. I can find liberty and freedom without God. I can build my own paradise without God. I can be wise. And so you step back and you go, there's whispers of the goodness of all, well, not all these things, many of these things that take you back to the Garden of Eden in the way that you were created for. You were created to enjoy your life in a body. And then the fall and the judgment, and I made reference to earlier, what's crooked cannot be made straight in the sense in which God himself as the judge brought the curse upon creation. In this world that life post fall would have this tension of life in a fallen world of sin and death and judgment and this sense of man i kind of enjoy life and it goes really good and i go for it and then it all breaks it's broken and part of the point is you will never achieve the paradise The self can never achieve the paradise that we long for, that we're made for, that there's hints of because of the judgment of God and because of a world full of decay. Romans 8 tells us about what Ecclesiastes is talking about. In the early New Testament times, they used to use a book called the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So usually when the writers are writing in their Greek and they go to the Old Testament, um, they write Greek for the Hebrews. They had this Bible of the Old Testament that was Greek. And one of the words that is used in the Greek Old Testament is found in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. And there it is. Frustration. What we find in Ecclesiastes. Not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul tells us that this world has been subject to futility by God, the judge. But in hope. Because this God did what humans cannot do. This God is not just impersonal out there. Just kind of letting the universe go about its havel. But this God... Became came flesh as a man in the person of Jesus to come to reverse every single one of the effects of the fall. So the, so the answer to Havel in this world is hope. The answer to Havel in this world is hope. That there is actually good news that God Himself came in the person of Jesus Christ to rescue this world so that you can enjoy life. And this whole picture for this world is longing for it. This world is longing for that freedom. The world is groaning for it. The earth, all of creation. When are the sons of God going to be revealed? He says it's going to happen. Redemption is coming. Ultimate joy is coming because it's already come. The kingdom came with Jesus Christ. And he died so that our death, the penalty of our death, would be taken care of. And for all who trust him, that they themselves could die with him and then rise with him in hope. And so we continue in this world to have that massive, unbelievable hope of triumph. That Jesus was the first fruits. Jesus rose again. I am guaranteed I will rise in a body if I trust him. In the new heavens and the new earth enjoying all that life gives forever and so we are to carry this hope in the ordinary pieces of life that's what that's what ecclesiastes is also about the ordinary eating and drinking the ordinary pleasures were to enjoy them jerome was a I remember exactly, an early church father. But there was this whole history of interpretation on this particular book of Ecclesiastes that was very ascetic. Very, okay, oh man, the world's full of havel. we got to withdraw. we got to just push back. Eh, we don't want to be too joyful. We want to be really spiritual. Well, that's not the way the Bible is. In fact, that's one of the first heresies was the Gnostic heresy, which was that the body is kind of gross and ugly and we just need to be spiritual and kind of get this new knowledge. And everything that this is saying... Of the whole story of Scripture is that God is coming back to redeem our bodies and that we can carry that kind of hope and therefore we can live in this world enjoying life. And sometimes in this world it's really going to suck hard. But yet we can enjoy it. We can laugh. We can do all these things. We can enjoy pleasure. We can enjoy the ordinary day to day tasks because we have hope in a world of Havel. C.S. Lewis, somewhere here, this is what happens. This is what happens when you have too many papers. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters. And there's a demon that's talking to Satan. And it's a good reminder about joy. And a reminder about the way that we can approach life and joy and pleasure and wisdom in this world. And this demon is talking to the devil, excuse me, his boss. And he says this, never forget, remember this is a demon talking, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are in a sense on the enemy, that's God, on the enemy's ground. It is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. God's a hedonist at heart. Everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. Nothing is naturally on our side. So again, the sense of the goodness of creation, and that is twisted. So don't approach the things like pleasure and wisdom, intellectual life, sensual life, this world, as if it's just, oh, we better avoid all that stuff. No, God gave it to us to enjoy. And throughout Ecclesiastes, we are going to see that. But it's to enjoy it with hope in relationship to there is a God. It's not just radical pursuit of pleasure just by myself. I'm attached in a relationship in a world with God. And I'm called to enjoy him and glorify him in this world, in my body, in all of these different things that he has given me. And we're going to see that all throughout Ecclesiastes. Eugene Peterson, in response to this Screwtape letters, Letter, says... Conversely, everything is by its nature on God's side. Every pleasure, every joy, every delight. The preacher opens our eyes to the distortions and corruptions of pleasure, our attempts to pursue it, our attempts to purchase it, and leaves us free to accept it as God's gift and enjoy it as his will. One of the most joyful passages to come from his pen is, and he quotes Ecclesiastes 9, 7, and 8, Go, eat your bread with enjoyment and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. So in a world of Havel, we can enjoy life. If you try to pursue life and all the things in it like Solomon, it's not going to go well. It's just going to look like Havel, empty, insignificant. But if in these bodies and still this fallen world, by the whole power of the Holy Spirit and in the person and work of what Jesus Christ has done for you, that you can enjoy life your work, your ordinary life in this world. And you can enjoy it because your hope isn't a wish. Your hope is actually founded on something. What Jesus did in history by shedding his blood and by rising from the grave in a body guaranteeing that we can be with him forever in a new heavens and a new earth. There's one scholar that says that Jesus kind of came to this earth eating and drinking through the pages of Scripture. You see that all the time in the Gospels. He gets in trouble for it. He's enjoying life and he's witnessing to this kingdom that is coming. And then he dies and then he rises again in victory. And so we see that human life as our model and we're going to fail imitating that. So we have faith and hope and that all that he did we are caught up in that. And so we celebrate Communion, doing very physical things, eating and drinking, celebrating the fact that real joy is found attached to God, to God's design, to what God has done for us. And so we can rejoice. So let's take communion.